this is not the thing I intended to do. Nor is it the thing I announced I was doing at the end of the last episode. See, as it turns out, the thing announced is actually rather difficult, and the investment of time and resources needed to complete it has grown, if not exponentially, then certainly in mathematical ways beyond comprehension. In other words, it is difficult, and more time is needed to produce episodes of the quality you've come to expect. At least, that's what seems to be the problem. But an episode is still needed, if for no other reason than the show's lovely supporters who, while infinitely patient, are also infinitely interested in having at least semi-regular episodes released. And far be it from me to deny them that prospect just because some little bit of writing has become troublesome. Such is life, I heard them saying. Get on with it. Let's have an episode. And so it shall be. But what sort of episode? On what sort of topic? There's nothing else prepared, nothing else even fully researched enough to become an alternate episode. What's a podcaster to do? Well, fortunately people still manage to write in occasionally with a question about some word or other they'd like to have answered, and far be it from me to completely ignore them and toss their suggestions in the trash can. After carefully printing them out first, of course. What, you don't print out all your email? But what if you lose that Nigerian prince's address? Anyway, after wiping old cracker crumbs off the crumpled up bits of paper in my, um... Executive round file, I surveyed the options on offer as sent in by the show's loyal and mostly forgiving listeners to see what was available. And originally, this was going to be one of our famous Lost episodes. You know, those occasional shows that used to get done when we were a bit desperate for a script and hadn't come up with anything solid enough to make a full episode itself. So we'd take all your suggestions that weren't quite long enough add in a few things we had laying around of our own, and cobble it together into a series of short blurbs about whatever was on hand until enough pages were filled up to get on with. Which is exactly what was intended for this episode. Except we hit a snag right away. See, the first thing we pulled out of the can, the file, was a request to cover Imix and dig into why it was called Imix and what that might mean. And on the face of it, an episode about the Archimental of Fire, or the Princes of Elemental Evil, seemed like a good idea. Certainly it had been around a while, long enough to have built up a lengthy backstory we could dig into and discover the origins of, surely. But when I did start digging in, well, between this and our City of Brass episode, it turns out we've covered nearly everything there is to cover. It barely even makes two paragraphs of info and so doesn't really qualify even for a Lost episode. There's not even a cool, what does the name mean, bit. Sorry. But never fear. After that failure, and after discarding several ideas left lying around from earlier episodes that turned out to be either more or less interesting than what was needed for a Lost episode, we finally hit upon a submitted suggestion with some mileage on it. It's all about diamond dust. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Tim S. wrote in a while ago to ask about spell components. 
Probably he's already worked out the answer to his question, but just in case it's all still up in the air, let's take a shot at providing an answer. Tim wrote, I was recently talking to a retired jeweler, and it got me thinking about gems as material components in D&D, and specifically why there are spells that call out diamond dust in particular for greater restoration. On one hand, it makes sense to have some spells need a rare-sounding ingredient that can be the seed for an entire adventure to acquire, but that could be anything. So why diamond dust? Were there medieval beliefs about diamond dust's magical properties? Was it just a cool bit of alliteration? An inside joke Gygax and the first creators shared now lost to the sands of time? This took a fair bit of doing to come up with the answer, and because some of you are so impatient for answers, let's jump to the end and explain that you, and probably anyone else who has ever paid any attention at all to material components for spells, so like five people, have made a huge assumption that may not be true. Also, a jeweler will be no help to you at all. Spell components for the uninitiated, or at least those who don't know what they are because your table ignores them entirely, are the ingredients in the recipes that make things go poof when the wizard waggles his fingers. To a certain extent, you can thank old friends of ours like Hermes Trismegistus for their existence. Without the tantalizing promises of alchemy he left behind in his writings, we'd all probably be a lot less concerned about exactly how much mouse blood is needed to turn lead into gold. Hint, a lot more than exists, apparently. But also, we have to thank Shakespeare and his three old crones who waylaid Macbeth by the side of the road and caused him so much eventual trouble. No doubt you'll recall our episode on magic potions in which we explained what exactly the point of love potions was, and began by explaining what exactly the point of Macbeth was. We opened that episode, more or less, with a recitation of the only potion recipe you remember a part of. The things those three witches were putting into their cauldron. To refresh your memory, the witches toss into the pot the following ingredients. Filet of snake, eye of newt, toe of frog, wool of bat, tongue of dog, Adder's fork, blindworm's sting, lizard's leg, howlet's wing, and once all that has been allowed to boil and bubble, they cool the whole thing with baboon's blood and wait for any wandering power-hungry generals to come by. But, as is often the case with magical paraphernalia, not everything is as it appears to be. Sure, it's a pretty terrifying list of disgusting ingredients, but what actually are they, and how are they collected? Are there a lot of recently blinded newts running around, or what? Well, fortunately for the newts, there are not. But have you ever, really, paid attention to the spell components listed under your favorite D&D-type spells? Take, for instance, the ever-popular fireball spell. Without diving off into a wild discussion of Vancean magic and sympathetic focus and whatnot, the fireball spell produces a ball of flame from one of your fingers, which zooms off and hopefully burns stuff up. Bad guys included. It has what are called verbal, somatic, and material components. In other words, things you say, things you do, and things you use to make the spell happen. Now, 
So important were each of these things that D&D literally has never cared what you actually say to make a spell happen. It could be any combination of reasonable-sounding magic words. The game doesn't care. Abracadabra works just as well as Hocus Pocus, which works just as well as a la peanut butter sandwiches. It makes no difference to the game. But what does matter, otherwise why would they have bothered writing it into the game rules for everyone to ignore, are the actions and ingredients you use to produce the spell. For Fireball, the action is a finger flick. How do I know it's a finger flick when the spell description only says the fireball comes from your pointing finger? Because I read what the spell's material components are. For a fireball, you're going to need either some sulfur or some bat guano. No, really, you use bat poop to make a fireball. So either something stinky and burny or something very stinky and burny. You know, certainly want to flick that off your fingers if you've just put your hand in a bag of ingredients and come out with that on it. The point being, though, that so far, no actual magic is involved in making a fireball work. All you need at this point is a source of ignition and fuel in the form of guano or sulfur, both of which readily burn to have an actual burning fireball flying through the air at your no-doubt startled enemy. Probably all the magic words are just there to sell the effect and distract people while you flick your bick. Sim, sim, salabim, and suddenly a burning ball of bat poop is aimed at your head. It works this way with other spells, too. Acid arrow requires powdered rhubarb leaf and an adder's stomach, which, unless you know about the high levels of oxalic acid in rhubarb leaves and can see how some powder and a bit of liquid put into a stretchy animal's stomach suddenly becomes a much more annoying sort of water balloon, seems silly on the face of it. The confusion spell requires three nutshells, and if you can't see how three-card Monty or find the P could confuse people, let me introduce you to a little game I like to play for money. All of which has led me to the conclusion that an even moderately skilled rogue in D&D, with some ranks in sleight of hand or whatever they call it these days, and with unfettered access to a spell component pouch and a nimble brain, could be a rather convincing party magic user with very little trouble at all. But I digress. The point of all this was, if I recall correctly, that in magic very few things are actually what they seem. See, the problem is, if you're a witch... What you don't want is more witches, or more people capable of doing the things witches do, particularly with potions, elixirs, balms, salves, and other devices of the healing, or indeed harming, arts. Because what that is, is competition. And no witch, however pleasantly disposed to others of her kind as she may be, wants anyone else cutting in on the profits, such as they are. So what you do is you take your list of completely normal ingredients and you encode them by giving them wildly outlandish names that only you know the translations for. And the worse the ingredients sound, and the more complicated it sounds like it will be to get them, the less likely it is that someone else is going to suddenly come up with your recipe for elderberry wine, which sells very well down by the sheep pens come spring, provided you're the only one who makes it. So suddenly, you're not selling elderberry wine. You're selling Judy Toothumb's Elixir of Divine Warmth, 
made from dolphin grease, shoe mold, and the wings of a jade kangaroo from the snowy top of Mount Deadclimb, gathered under the light of the eclipse in December on a Tuesday. So you'll be unsurprised to know that the items the witches are brewing in Macbeth are really quite mundane. Eye of Newt is just mustard seeds. Toe of Frog is buttercups. Holly leaves pass for wool of bat, and believe it or not, tongue of dog is just another way of saying hound's tongue. An actual plant that, thanks to alkaloid toxins, can cause a liver to shut down and stop cell division, which will eventually kill it. And you. Adder's tongue and blindworm are actual things, though, exactly as advertised. And we've mentioned the you and hemlock before in the other episode. So now that all that has been explained, let's return to the original question sent in by Tim. What's the deal with diamond dust? Well, two things, really. And we might have to go the long way around to get to an answer. Which is not to say the answer, just an answer. See, Gary and company didn't really leave a lot of hints, aside from the fact that their particular sense of humor, general knowledge, and desire to amuse themselves seems to have informed most of their decisions and led to things like bat guano and oxalic acid-bearing rhubarb as spell components. The first thing is this. How do you get diamond dust? Remember that D&D is ostensibly set in a pseudo-medieval time period. And at this point, you could consider the hardness of diamonds and the available technology of the time period and that sort of thing. And sure, it would just about have been possible for, say, someone running a water-powered steel hammer mill to break a diamond. But we're talking diamond dust, and that requires a thorough pulverization of a diamond worth 100 gold pieces. Which, in D&D, you might as well just read as $100, for all the attention paid to conversion rates and daily fluctuations in precious metal prices. It's diamond dust, not chips, not chunks, not diamond grit. Diamond dust, and dust we take to mean a very fine powder. Frankly, it's hard to see how anyone could do that even in this day and age, let alone back then. So I'm sure now that I've said that, I'll be inundated with a hundred articles about how laser rockets atomize diamonds for breakfast. So it's perfectly possible now. Even so-called diamond powder is just a lot of very small diamonds. Maybe you were meant to carry bags of diamonds around all day, letting them rub against each other, wearing away until a tiny pile of diamond dust formed in the bottom of the pouch. Who knows? It seems unlikely. But hey, magic, imagination, willing suspension of disbelief, etc. It's your table. But for us, and by us I mean we, the GM word of the week listening populace, the problem seems more significant than that rather flippant solution might suggest. No, for us, the suspicion is that Gary and crew meant something else, perhaps something more whimsical, just like Shakespeare's witches meant something else. But what? Well, in order to answer that question, something kind of boring has to happen. Unless you're a meteorologist, of course, in which case you'll be more than happy to know we're about to discuss the last refuge of the conversationally bankrupt... the weather. 
When I was younger, Christmas was a lovely time of year. There were presents, of course, and getting together with the family. And even though it would come to irk us a number of years later, I was still of an age that didn't mind sitting at the kids' table. What I did mind, though, was the drive home from the relative's house. It was usually around midnight, and given that the relatives lived about 20 miles away in a little town down an increasingly rural highway, the journey was often quite dark, lit only by the beams of our car's headlights. Most of the time there was only a modicum of traffic traveling along with us one way or the other, which was fine, because you couldn't actually see anything at all. Not oncoming cars, not the road in front of you, not even, on some occasions, the front of the very car you were driving in, no matter how bright the headlights were. In fact, the brighter they were, the worse you could see. Because fog. In fact, one year, just on the cusp of getting my learner's permit, and therefore being very interested in all aspects of driving, the fog was rolling in so thick that from my location in the back seat, peering out the front windshield, it seemed to me that even at the very cautious speed of 20 miles an hour, we were drifting unstoppably to the right and off the road into a nearby ditch. Never mind that the car would have had to travel at right angles to its wheels. The fog was so thick that this was the impression it gave as it reflected the low beams back at us from inches in front of the car. Most Christmas trips home weren't this bad, but there was almost always a blanket of fog for every Christmas drive home. A lot of people will tell you that fog is just low-flying clouds, which is not entirely inaccurate, but is also not entirely correct. See, the moisture that makes up fog, unlike that which makes up clouds, has to come from a local source, and that local source can be anything from a nearby body of water to extra damp ground, which is why we often had so much fog on our drive home. Nearby, very damp, pear orchards, which would collect water and heat during the day while the sun was up, and then release it all as night fell. Once the dew point, which is the temperature at which water vapor condenses out of the air into droplets, once the dew point begins to approach within two and a half degrees Celsius of the air temperature, you're in for the sort of damp that just hangs around. Normally this condensing water would meet a cold surface and form up into dewdrops, but in the case of fog, it fails to do this. Maybe because there's a strong updraft from the ground, or because all the local plants are giving up all their stored water, or the air is lifting over the mountains, or a whole bunch of other reasons that mean the droplets of water vapor hang about in the air instead of falling to the ground like they should. In the case of our ride home, it was because all the daytime winter sun heated up both the asphalt of the highway and the ground of the pear orchard during the day, which meant all the cold moisture at night couldn't get to the ground for all the heat still rising, thereby suspending all that water right in front of our car as we crept slowly back home. And I told you that story, so I can tell you this one. If you happen to visit either the Arctic or the Antarctic, your choice, you will notice two things almost immediately. First, it is very cold. And second, there's a lot of snow and ice laying around the place. In either place, if it gets cold enough, 
and if the conditions are just right, tiny ice crystals will spontaneously form in the air out of a clear blue sky for exactly the opposite reasons fog does. That is, these ice crystals form because warm, moisture-carrying upper air comes into contact with a much colder, non-moisture-carrying air from the ground. If this happens when temperatures are from below freezing to about minus 39 degrees Celsius, then the moisture crystallizes into very small, delicate crystals which drift down towards the ground, reflecting the sunlight as they go, sparkling all the way. And so enchanting and pretty is this sparkling that the phenomena is known as diamond dust. On the Antarctica Plateau, diamond dust is said to fall 316 days of the year. Occasionally, it can be seen to fall as far south as Japan, Minnesota, and bits of northern Europe. And if that isn't a far more interesting way to get spell components than just automatically finding them in your component pouch, I don't know what is. But if that isn't enough to get your players interested in a little arctic adventure, maybe you can tell them about one more thing to really whet their appetite. Maybe you can tell them about the magical animal occasionally spotted when the diamond dust falls. See, Diamond dust is highly reflective and bounces sunlight all over the place. That's why it's so sparkly. But in fact, it's also really very good at refracting sunlight. The difference? Reflecting bounces light off a surface. Refraction changes the course of light as it passes through a surface. Like looking at a pencil in a glass of water, the pencil appears to separate as it passes into the water, becoming two half pencils. This is light refraction through water. The same phenomena that makes rainbows, or indeed splits white light into its colored components through a prism. Well, diamond dust does the same thing. Sunlight passing through it refracts in very specific ways, causing a variety of halo effects depending on conditions and where you are observing it from. One such effect, light pillars or solar pillars, is a phenomenon in which the light coming from a source appears to streak up into the sky in brilliantly lit columns, not entirely unlike crepuscular rays, about which see our episode. It's a beautiful, dazzling display and quite amazing when it happens. However, the one you really want to sell your players on is a little more complex. See, sometimes the ice crystals cause a semicircular halo to form around the sun itself, particularly as the sun is setting. Again, given the right conditions, the sun will appear to pick up two half-suns, each one flanking the sun itself at about 22 degrees horizontally. These extra suns can shift colors and form and move as they follow the slowly sinking sun behind the horizon. And if your players are anything like my players used to be, offering them a chance to catch two sun dogs, as the phenomenon is known, ought to be worth any trip to collect diamond dust. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. I know it wasn't what you expected, but hopefully you enjoyed it anyway. With a bit of luck and skill, the next episode should be on track and ready in a couple of weeks. Until then, if you'd like to help support the show and keep it going, consider heading over to the Buy Me a Coffee page for the show at buymeacoffee.com fiddleback and grabbing a membership. They start as low as $5 a month and include things like transcripts and early show releases, along with access to a special blog, a Discord channel, and more. You'll be joining a group of stalwarts who have more than earned the title Friends of the Show. And if a regular monthly pledge is too much for you, you can offer one-time support in any amount you like just to say, hey, thanks for making the show. Keep at it. That's buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback. This episode is a Fiddleback production and was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. We shall find peace. We shall hear angels. We shall see the sky sparkling with diamonds. Diamonds.